Thanks for checking out the Lakeshore Podcast. If this is your first time listening with us, we want you to know God loves you. We want for your hope in Jesus to be renewed and for your faith to come to life. Wherever you are joining us from, we hope this message encourages you. Of kind of a series of mini studies, and we've entitled the big umbrella topic, I've Got Questions. And this particular uh, second section, part two here, has been how do we navigate relationships in a postmodern culture? And so we've talked about in this last little section here, we talked about what, what's the real purpose of relationships and what we kind of think it is from a, from a cultural, postmodern perspective, and what the Bible says it is. And then we went, uh, Pastor Brandon last week defined what biblical love is and how that's different from the term love or the feeling-oriented love that seems to uh, permeate our culture right now. Well, today we're going to answer a question in a culture that demands unconditional acceptance in the name of love. How do Christians respond especially in areas where we are commanded, do not love. And that's kind of a shocking statement to a lot of Christians, right? Because we, we're, so, uh, can, we're so characterized by love, and rightfully so, we'll look at that, that for some Christians to, to come to an awareness, wait a minute, there's actually places in the Bible that we are not suggested, not encouraged, we are commanded in the most emphatic terms, do not love. And, and so we want to look and we want to understand this. And so I ask you to turn to, to 1 John chapter 2. We'll take a peek there and, uh, and eventually we'll get back to Matthew 10 and then spend the rest of our time in 1 John chapter 2. But uh, just before we read the, the, the selection this morning, um, we, we have to remind ourselves who John is. Because some of you might not be connecting the dots. But John, uh, who wrote 1 John, is also the one who wrote the Gospel of John. As you glean through scriptures, you find out he's the one that was referred to as the beloved disciple. So he's just this real loving, always very nurturing, uh, you know, disciple. He was one of three that Jesus pulled into an inner circle. So lots of times he wouldn't, he wouldn't, you know, bring the 12 with him. He just pulled these three in and John was always one. He's the one that sat closest to Jesus. And by the way, that was a very intentional seating chart, a seating order at the last supper, but he sat close enough to Jesus that at times he was leaning back on Jesus as they were talking and as they were interacting. And here, here's probably the biggest thing to his credit. He's the one that Jesus, when he was on the cross, entrusted the care of his mother to. He said, I'm, I'm, I'm dying here. I'm not going to be around. John, I need you to take care of his mother. And history shows that John did that for, for literally for the rest of his life. And so when we understand that he was such a loving individual, such, such, such nurturing by character, it doesn't surprise us then when we look at 1 John overall that we find out that this particular letter that was written about 50 years after Jesus died and, and rose again and is now written by a very seasoned disciple turned apostle. But the whole tone of the letter from, from beginning to the end is very warm, it's very friendly, and, and it really has this fatherly or this nurturing uh, kind, kind of an, uh, an underpinning to it, which makes studying this particular passage that we're going to in a postmodern culture one of the most critical things for us to study but at the same time, one of the most controversial things for us to study. And we'll find out why as we, as we begin reading here in verse 15. First John chapter 2 in verse 15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, and he's going to name what, what they all come from, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of the Father abides forever. Now again, if you're reading this kind of a first time or you're just letting it soak in, it seems contradictory. 
especially to all of the other commandments that we have throughout the Bible, but especially in the New Testament, that command us not just to love, but to love extravagantly. Let me just kind of read you a quick list. We're not going to turn to any of these. I'm not going to teach any of these. But in Mark chapter 12, verse 31, uh, we're commanded by Jesus himself to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength, and to take that same temple of love and bring it over and to love our neighbors as ourselves. John chapter 13 verse 35 says that the world will literally recognize that we are devoted followers of Jesus by the love that we demonstrate one to another. Matthew chapter 5 verse 44 says not only are we to love our neighbors and love one another, we're even supposed to love our enemies. And we're supposed to bless those that are despitefully using us. Romans chapter 13 verse 8 says that we're not to be indebted to anybody. We're to make sure that our accounts are clean, that our, our, our relationships are, are cleansed and everything's going good. Except in one area, we need to understand we are going to be forever in debt up to our eyeballs in terms of how we love each other. We'll never pay that off. We owe each other a, love, a debt of love. And so we, we could keep going, it's just a sampling, but from those scriptures you read something like 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, do not love the world, and you feel like that is so contradictory that it almost seems like it would collapse under the weight of the other scriptures that's, that tell us to, that command us that we're supposed to love. But, but then there's the issue of some other scriptures like the one that's the most prominent uh, in the New Testament, at least the most, one of the most popular, and it's John 3.16. And it literally says, for God so loved the world, which begs the question, well, if God loves the world, then how come we're not supposed to love the world? And then you add to that the pressure of this postmodern ideology that they've borrowed, you know, pirated from Christendom and turned it into like the 11th commandment, thou shalt be nice. And if you're a Christian, that's all the options you have in every condition. You have to be really nice. You have to be really sweet. You have to be really loving. And they use that as a club, by the way, to cancel out the other 10 commandments because they're not relevant anymore, and to silence anybody that would try to stand up for the truth. You, you can understand why a lot of Christians are confused. You can understand why a lot of Christians are struggling. Like, I, yeah, I, I love the, the Lord, and I want to do what the Bible says, but what in the world? How do you navigate all this crazy stuff? How can a beloved disciple of a beloved son who was sent by the loving father to be the beloved savior, how can he write us with authority and say, do not love? And yet, there it is, in command form. Not an encouragement, not a suggestion, which really tells us if we're willing, if we're willing to read soberly that if you do love what you've been commanded not to love, then loving actually becomes a sin. There's no argument in the Bible rationale. It's not rocket science. It's, it's pretty simple. But, but here's the one I like the best, okay? And, and that is that this is what Jesus himself said. Now, remember the, the kind of the picture, right? The characterization that most of the world uh, and, and, and a lot of Christians have of Jesus. Where Jesus, he's got to close your eyes sometimes and picture. He's this European shampoo model with very soft features. He's just got, you know, he's perfect all the way down in a spotless robe. He's always got his arms wide open, which signals acceptance, unconditional love and acceptance. He's oftentimes surrounded by children. Sometimes he has this helpless little lamb on his shoulders that he's rescued, and he's just oozing, oozing, oozing with compassion and love and acceptance. That Jesus, just so we're clear, that Jesus, all right? This is what he said out of his own mouth in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34 through 39. He says, don't imagine that I came to bring peace to the earth. I came not to bring peace, but a sword. What? That can't be Jesus. No, that's not the Jesus. What, what about the Jesus that just said, come unto me, all of you that are, that are, are tired and, and, and feel rejected. What about that Jesus? Yeah, it's the same Jesus. But this Jesus said, whatever you do, don't imagine, some translations say, don't be deceived, don't be tricked, don't let anybody pull the wool over your eyes and tell you that I came to bring peace on the earth. I came not to bring peace, but a sword. 
He went on and he said, I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Your enemies will be right in your own household. We got to let this stuff soak in. Right in your own household. If you love your father or mother more than you love me, you're not worthy of being mine. Or if you love your son or your daughter more than me, you're not worthy of being mine. If you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of being mine. If you cling to your life, then you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, then you will find it. And again, in the context of, you know, love, 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 do not love, love, love. Like, what is going on? What, what does this even mean? Well, let me just kind of tell you real quick. Jesus is not marginalizing relationships. He's certainly not weaponizing Christianity against relationships. Jesus is not in any way, shape, or form saying you should stop loving your loved ones. Not even close. He's not saying that. What he is saying, he's highlighting four really, really important principles that I'm just going to read to you real quick. Number one, you have to recognize that when you become a committed disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's a really strong possibility that somewhere along the line, that's going to end up in division and rejection by somebody else. By the way, Christians are trying to figure out how to get this through their head, but I want you to notice this postmodern culture, the woke culture, they're not confused at all. They know that, that by standing with a set of values that they've created and now that's their truth, they know it could, it could possibly cost them every relationship they have. And they're okay with that. We're the ones who somehow think that we, we can be loving and sweet enough and it's all just kind of kind of fused together and it won't cost us anything. You won't find that anywhere in the New Testament. It's not. In fact, there's a lot in the New Testament that talks about the more you lean into a relationship with Jesus and the more you follow him, you're going to suffer persecution. It's going to cost you something. We haven't experienced it here in the United States and I'm praying personally that we don't. Paul said we can pray that we live quiet and peaceable lives with all godliness and honest, you know, honest understanding here and we can just move on. I'm praying that we can continue that. But I don't think you have to be, you know, you have to be super uh, on, the, on the cutting edge of everything that's going on to recognize it seems like we've got a momentum that's going the other way. Here's the second thing and that is that you, you need to know you have an enemy who's going to go after those most precious relationships in your life. They're not off bounds. They're not out of bounds. He's going to go after them because he's trying to get to you. He wants to test your faith and he wants to, if possible, dilute your loyalty to Jesus Christ. And, and that's just a reality. And so we have to understand some things about praying and contending and, 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 and building you know, guards around our family because they're not off limits. He's going to go after them. Here's number three. There's not any earthly relationship that should be allowed to distract or detract you from the loyalty of God uh, to God and to his word. Not any. This is what Jesus was talking about. There's not any relationship, no matter how intimate and how personal it is, that can come before him. These are followers of Christ. These are very clear, by the way. And here, here's the last one as the ultimate example of God's love. And this is what we read. Jesus' assignment that he came was not to preserve peace and harmony at all costs. That was not his assignment. I, I know that's being hurled at the Christian community. I know this is what everybody's trying to paint, but you don't have to read very deeply in your Bible to find out, nope, that's not, that was not at all his number one pressing assignment. His number one pressing assignment was to establish the kingdom with authority and clarity so that peace could come. And see, we, we have to understand this. And by the way, just in case you think, well, yeah, but that was Jesus. You know, he was the savior and he came to, to reconcile and redeem. And well, Christ followers have the same mandate. That's exactly what uh, one version of the Great Commission in Mark 16 says. It says, go into all the world, listen, and preach the gospel to every creature. And here's the result. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. Yay, praise the Lord for that. But he who does not believe will be condemned. 
These are draw, drawing lines in the sand. This is the reality of what Christianity and what the message of Christ is all about. And so here's the conclusion I want you to understand, and then we're, we're going to lean into 1 John 2. If, if you hear or you have any notion of a Jesus who is always and only loving and affirming and embracing, irregardless of people's internal and external conditions and, and their values, listen to me, it's just not consistent with Scripture. You go read for yourself, and you don't, you don't have to dive very deep. It's not consistent with the Word of God. However, let me tell you what it is consistent with. This whole approach that, you know, with that, that we're just supposed to love everybody because everybody's on a journey and we're, ne we're never supposed to say anything that would antagonize or anything that would confront or, or anything that would you know, kind of set the record straight for truth. We're just supposed to love. Let me tell you what that is consistent with. It's consistent with the lie that Satan told Eve and has been using to deceive every person on the earth from that point on. This is a paraphrased version, but go back and read Genesis chapter three, verse four and five, and you'll find out. I'm not stretching the truth, but this is what he said, kind of with a little bit of postmodern wokeism flavor on it. He said, listen to me, I know what God said to do, but listen to me, if you do that, you're not gonna die. In fact, here's the truth. Following your own truth will actually help you to discover your true self. And will, in that sense, make you more like God, which will draw you closer to God. You'll understand more about the freedom and the responsibility of charting your own course. And isn't that what God wants all of everybody to do, just to find happiness? This is exactly what he said to them. And they bought into it, and we've seen that people have bought in ever since. And, and we're going to talk about why in just a little bit here. Okay, so with that as a foundation... Uh, we're going to look at 1 John chapter 2, and let me give you four reasons from just this few verses why love can, be, can actually be a sinful thing. And that way when we're in this pride month and you're hearing all these, you know, love is love and, and love is following your own dream and love is not of the mind, love, love is not, you know, love is of the mind, not of the gender and, and we should love everybody because everybody deserves to be loved. When you're hearing all of these statements that are borrowed from fragments of Christianity and they're being hurled at you that you can understand and you, you can be confident on the inside, well, we, we are to be loving people. It should characterize our life. However, there's at least four different instances that the Bible's very clear. We are commanded, do not love. And, and you'll, you'll, you'll understand that. I'm not saying it's gonna make the relationship easy. I'm not saying that it'll make you the most popular person in a conversation. Not. What I am saying is that you'll understand very clear, you won't be confused anymore. This is what it means to follow Jesus and this is what the word of God says. First John chapter two, here's reason number one, love becomes sinful when it's directed at the wrong object. Love becomes simple when it's sinful when it's directed at the wrong object. In 1 John 2.15, again, it says, do not love the world or the things of the world. Now, the word world there is used a couple of times, actually three times in the text, and, and you have to understand the context that, uh, that it's defining the word world because this same word world, cosmos in the Greek, is used in a number of other scriptures. For example, in uh, John chapter 1, verse 10, it talks about that Jesus was in the world and that the world was made by him, but the the world didn't understand him. They didn't know him. They didn't receive him. Well, there it's talking about kind of the, the, the universe, the planet, uh, the, the, you know, the environment where this collection of, of human beings uh, inhabits. And, and it's not, God's not saying, you know, to us in first John, don't love, don't care about the planet. Don't care about the earth. Don't care about the universe. I'm not saying that he's pitching the green new deal. Okay, there's a whole lot of discussion there, but what I am saying is God's not saying that we should just be you know, completely clueless and haphazard about that. Another, another place we, we just read where Jesus said, uh, where, where the Bible says God so loved the world, he's talking about the people in the world there. He's talking about the, the, the world full of humans, and he's not telling us not to love other people. We should always be loving. We should always be, be caring about mankind. 
We know that's not true because, again, we've already read in Matthew the great, one of the great commandments that he said was to love your neighbor as yourself. And so he's not saying we shouldn't love people. But in 1 John chapter 2, all three of these occasions, the word cosmos is talking about the world order. Kind of the arrangement, how, how the world is moving about, the, the rhythms and, 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 and the ideologies and the things that are governing the world. In fact, it includes the countries and the cultures. It includes cities and community. It includes the political systems and the governments and, and all of the ideology which in, to, to in our world happens to be a worldview ideology, an anti-Jesus ideology that's fostering this, this movement that sometimes subtly, sometimes very obviously is at war with and in rebellion against the principles of God. It's not the only time it's talked about. It's all the way through the Bible. If you'll recognize phraseologies and references, let me just give you a quick snapshot. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul says, Satan, who's the God of this world, is trying to blind the eyes of people. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, talks about the prince of the power of the air and the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. That's, that's the same thing he's talking about, this world order. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, talks about principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this age and spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. All of those is talking about this world system or this world order. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 is what we've been kind of pulling along with us. It talks about deceiving spirits and doctrines doctrines of demons. This stuff makes sense. This stuff, if you're not careful, it's all about love and everybody should be loved and we should just love everybody. If you're not careful, you'll just hear that little thing and they'll say, that sounds like that one little thing in the Bible and you'll buy into it because it's a, it's a deception. But not only that, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13 talks about evil men and imposters that will grow worse and worse in the last days, deceiving and being themselves deceived. But even if we said, well, look, but let's not go to the whole New Testament. We're talking about just 1 John. Even if we stayed in 1 John, here's how this loving disciple kind of skipped a rock and, and, and talked about it all the way through his letter. In chapter 3, verse 1, he talked about a world that doesn't know God and therefore remains in intentionally, willfully ignorant of God. Not only do they not go know God, they don't want to know God. In, in verse 13 of 1 John 3, he said, because the world's ignorant of God, the world then hates those who follow God's ways. They, they don't understand. They're not even trying to understand. All they know is we seem very narrow. In fact, I just happened to catch a, a little piece of an interview and, uh, and it was supposed to, it was a, a progressive Christian pastor with all the colorful rainbow Pride Month garb and everything. And, and one of the things that they so intellectually espoused is that one of the hard things about Christianity is that we always seem to be lagging behind the times. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus, somebody said. I, I felt the same way. I said, well, you're absolutely right we are. We're trying to anchor this thing to reality. We're trying to anchor it to biblical truth, to what God said is going to allow us to flourish and allow our families and our generations to move forward. But, but their argument, again, from a progressive Christian standpoint, is that we're always lagging behind the times. But here's one of my favorite, the, my favorite two verses. Well, there's a couple more in 1 John, but let me, let me just jump to my, my favorite two verses in 1 John is in chapter five, verse four and five. Listen to this. It says, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Well, that's an encouragement because it seems like when I open the news stream and I'm, you know, I'm scrolling everywhere, it seems like that even though statistically, the voices that are screaming the loudest are the minority, it seems like they're winning. It seems like, man, we, we don't have a chance. How in the world can we maintain this thing just keeps piling and piling and piling? And yet, 1 John chapter 5 says, yeah, you need to understand whatever's born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Who is he that overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So when, when John says, do not love the world, he's talking about this system that is under the control and under the doctrine of, of, of the enemy. And he says, this spiritual and ideological approach is at absolute emphatic war with our king. He said, when you see that, whatever you do as a Christ follower, do not love that world. 
Don't show it any compassion. I'm not talking about the people, but the ideology. We don't try, well, we just want to understand. And Nope, we, we want to see what the Bible says. And we want, if you'll listen, to help you understand what God's already made clear. This doesn't need to be a big discussion. Here, here's number two, reason number two. Love becomes sinful when it's pointed in the wrong direction. This is where in verse number 15, the second half, it says, if anyone loves the world, then the love of the Father is not in him. Listen to the Christian Jewish Bible, how it reads. It says, if someone loves the world, then love for the Father is not in him. And and here's what you have to understand. The love of God is foundation in our love for God. The reason we can love other people so lavishly, even our enemies, is because we have a love for God in our heart And that births a supernatural ability to be able to see things from God's perspective and to love people in spite of their their behavior. However, we get confused if we're not careful and people will compromise their love for God in an attempt to love family and friends with God's love. Not biblical. Not possible. You're in a natural emotional balance and you don't realize you are compromising compromising uh, the things of the Lord. Again, not the only time uh, in the New Testament. James chapter four, verse four is, is very similar. It says, do you, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Jesus again talking in Matthew chapter six, verse 24. He said, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. In other words, both of these passages, and there's a number of others, but both of these passages are putting you in an either-or situation. You you can't do both. You, You have to make a choice. You can't love the world and all the stuff that comes with it and simultaneously love God. Somebody has to be in that number one slot. And you say, well, why isn't that true? Well, First Peter helps us in, in chapter 2, verse 9. He says, because you're a chosen generation. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're his own special people pulled out that you may proclaim the praises of him who's called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. In other words, when you got born again, you literally transferred your namesake to a different family. You transferred your citizenship, your eternal citizenship to a whole different governing nation. That was the kingdom of God. You went from dark, corrupted ways of thinking and living uh, living that's dominating the world. You moved over into God's pure and perfect and promising kingdom way of life. And with that transfer of position was supposed to be a transfer of allegiance. You were supposed to say, no, Jesus is my Lord and I'm now going to move over. But John 15 says, if your love is still for the world, it's a signal that you might have acknowledged Jesus as the Savior, but you haven't transferred your allegiance to him as Lord because all of your allegiance and your thoughts are still over somewhere else. Let me give you a real practical example that should resonate with you. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, uh, This is what Paul writes. He writes, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loves the church. But here's here's the the important tagline, and gave himself for it. In other words, when you get married, the husbands have a calling to love their wives exclusively in a whole different category to the point that if a husband begins to turn towards somebody else, doesn't even have to be practically or literally, doesn't have to be physically, it can be mentally, it can be emotionally. We have a number of different venues that can happen. But when he begins to turn somebody towards somebody else, Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount said, even though even if you're just thinking of it, even if you've even traveled that direction, you've already committed adultery. Because that's a sacred love. And that belongs. You took you took vows and said, nope. It's you and you only for the rest of my life. And if you begin doing, some people say, well, you know, you can, you can look at the menu as long as you don't order it. That's not the Bible. That's not the Bible. And so he's saying in the same way, if we take the love that we have committed to God, when we said, we're going to follow you forever, you are not just our savior, you're our Lord. And we direct that towards the world 
then what that communicates is that your love is not wholly dedicated to God. He's one of the things that you might love, but he's not exclusively the things that you've committed your love to. And by the way, this is not just talking about restraining from wrong actions. I alluded to it, but I want, want to lean in a little bit more. It's possible for, for you to love another person other than your spouse and never act on that passion. And if and when that happens, your morality, your natural personhood will scream, well, no, but, but I'm not guilty. I didn't do anything wrong because I, I'm not participating in anything, even though what's really happening is your love, your affection, your thoughts, your intention are moving towards somebody else with every fiber of your being. I want you to notice the Bible doesn't say, just don't participate in the world. It doesn't say don't overindulge in the world. It says do not love the world. Because if you don't love the world, then there's no risk in over-participating or overindulging. You'll, you'll see the lines real clear. You know you've been married to, some, to, to the Lord Jesus already, and you're already spoken for, and nobody else gets that place in your life. And it's really important that we understand that. And we'll say, well, how do we do that? Let me quickly read John 17, and we're going to move on. John 17, Jesus is talking. He's actually praying just before he leaves the earth. He's praying to his heavenly Father for his disciples. And this is what he says. He says, they are not of this world. They're in the world, but they're not of this world, just as I'm not of this world. Now, listen to the comparison, because he's going to carry this through. Jesus is saying, okay, you, you know how I'm not of this world, how I'm actually God's son? You, you know, we get that now on this side of the New Testament. He said, yeah, in the same way, these disciples that had given their life to Christ and were kind of pre, uh, pre-cross, pre-redemption saved, he said, they're in the world, but they're not of the world. They've already committed their life to me. And just like I'm not of the world, they're not of the world. Their citizenship is different. Listen to what he says in verse 17. He says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And as you've sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctified myself so that they may also be sanctified by the truth. So Jesus said, just like me, I'm not of the world, but I was sent into the world. They're no longer of the world, even though they grew up in it. Now they've transferred their citizenship, their loyalties to the kingdom of God. They're still in the world, but they're no longer of the world. But I'm sending them back into that world system. But I need them to be sanctified. I need them to be sanctified in order to go back in there and not become of the world. The word sanctified in both cases here uh, comes from the, the Greek word hagnazo, and it's where we, we get the word for holy. And it means to recognize some, something's different. Something, something has a distinguished value, has, has, has such, such a, a preciousness to it that you set it aside and it's over in its own cabinet. It's over in its own category. It's like your fine china that doesn't come out for every day, only on very, very, very special occasions. But, but not only that, this is so consecrated and so holy that you make sure to, to keep your eyes on it. You'll pull it out sometimes and dust it off. You'll make sure to polish it up. You'll make sure that after you do use it, you clean it and you purify it and you sterilize it before you put it back up there and put it behind the, these sacred you know, compartments. That's what the word holy means. And Jesus is saying in verse 19, he said, I took the word of God, the principles of God, and I sanctified my life. I washed and I cleaned myself and I kept myself from being stained and pure. He didn't sin at all. He says, and I did that so that those who follow me, they could now do that too with the truth of God's word. And so we take the truth of God's word and we recognize we are people that's characterized by love. But number one, love becomes sin when it's pointed in the, at the wrong object. And number two, love becomes sin when it's pointed in the wrong direction. Here's number three. Love becomes sinful when it arises from the wrong source. Now this one's really important because it helps us uh, to, to recognize little tiny root systems in our life. But John Chapter 2, verse 16 says, For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but it's of the world. And I want you to notice that a love for the world is rooted in the love from the world. 
So if you feel like you're struggling with some of this stuff, well, you know, now that you mentioned it, and boy, there's, there's these things, and if, if I had to choose between them and the Lord, it's like, ah, oh, that's just such a wrestling match. I, I'm trying to avoid that. If you have any of that kind of stuff going on, and it, the reason you have a love for the world is because you've got something growing in you that's coming from the world, and he gives us three particular arenas that we can keep an eye on, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The first two of them, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, these are internal or hidden sins, things that are going on in each of our heart, maybe, that nobody will ever know. Um, But then the last one, the pride of life, is when the first two have taken root and they're growing so much that it starts coming to the outside and we can see. So let me me just kind of give you a quick quick understanding of this and you can measure it and then we'll we'll be finishing up. Uh, The lust of the flesh is, again, an internal sin. This is a desire that comes from being fleshly creatures in a fallen world. In, In other words, as humans, we have all of these desires that God gave us. And then, by the way, Genesis says he turned around, he gave them to us, he blessed them, and, and, and he said, boy, those are all good. This is how you live a good, righteous life. And there are things like, you know, we, we desire food, we desire water, we desire shelter. Here's a shocking one for some Christians. We desire intimacy or sex, and we desire comfort. We desire all those things. All God blessed, all God sanctioned, they're wonderful. But when the fall happened, it introduced a natural part of our life that, that tends to push us to exceed God's boundaries. We still want all of those things. We just don't always want them in the boundaries that God said. And when that happens, it takes something that's a healthy desire and moves it into a sinful craving or a lust. Now, let me, let me just tell you the one that's pretty neutral, uh, but I'm telling on myself a little bit when I say this uh, because we'll talk about hunger. Hunger is hunger's a, a natural desire. It's a God-given one. It drives us to food. Uh, eating's a good thing. Jesus ate when he was on the earth. We're told when we get to heaven, there's going to be a feast and feasting like we cannot even imagine. And so eating's good there. But when hunger becomes a lust or a need or a dependency on food, then it turns into what the, the Bible calls gluttony, something we don't like to talk about much. But it's absolutely, the Bible says, a sin. I, I can move you through a number of cases, but let me just tell you, Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 tells you the only way that we overcome the lust of the flesh is by crucifying the flesh, is by taking the word of God, scrubbing ourselves down, sanctifying ourselves, and saying, I know that initially this is a good thing. I know that it feels really good. I know that it's kind of, you know, what helps me to cope or helps me to relax or helps me to rejuvenate. But here's the boundaries that the Bible says I have to put on it. And so I have to crucify that part of my flesh that wants to overindulge. And if I do that, then I will keep myself from gratifying the flesh. First one's the lust of the flesh. Here's the second one, the lust of the eyes. This is also internal. And it's a desire to, uh, it's an unrighteous desire to possess what one sees or possess something that has visual appeal. This is what happened when the, uh, the serpent told Eve, you're not gonna die, man. Look how good that fruit looks. And in Genesis 3, 6, she started looking at it and she says, you know, the more I look at it, that's a good looking piece of fruit. I bet you that would taste really good. In fact, I can see how that would be so nutritious for me. Probably even like a brain food, make me wise. And, and she was looking at that. And he, Hebrews chapter 12 tells us the only way that we can guard against the lust of the eyes is we keep our eyes on Jesus. We keep our eyes on the word. And that safeguards and that filters the lens so that we can know when we've stepped out of bounds to something because the Bible's really clear. Here's the last one. When it finally comes out, it's called the pride of life. And this is an external sin. It's anything that leads to arrogance. Now that one's obvious, right? You've been around somebody who's just so braggadocious, like over the top, egotistical and, and arrogant, and you've been around that. But, but here's what, what's a much more subtle, and, and we have to work harder even to identify in our own life. It, it, the pride of life is this conceit in one's self-sufficiency. Like if you have problems saying to yourself in your prayer time, Lord, I need you. You might want to check and see where the pride of life is in your life. If you think like, honestly, Lord, I appreciate the blessings. And by the way, don't stop that. But I got this. Look at this wonderful life that I've built. If any of those kinds of things are going on inside of you, 
And the Bible says there's a little tiny seed, a root of the pride of life that's growing. And you know, the pride of life is dangerous. The Bible says that's where the original source of sin came from. In Isaiah, it talked about Lucifer, who was the angel of the morning, was lifted up in pride. This, this self-aggrandizing, this self-sufficiency, like, no, I got this. I got this. I'm not depending on the Lord. And the Bible says there's two things that will help us. Hebrews chapter four says, Jesus sympathizes with this, by the way, and all of our weaknesses. And so he invites us to come to the throne of mercy and grace. For us to come, first of all, acknowledge we, we don't have it. We all need God's mercy every single day. If God gave us what we really deserved on your best day, when you think, man, you, you know, you're the humanitarian of the, of the world, on your best day, if God measured your heart in his righteousness, the Bible says it's like this filthy, dirty, stinking, mold-infested, bacteria-latent rag. It's gross. But we, we tend to start thinking pretty good about ourselves. And we need to come to the Lord and we need to say, Lord, it's only by your, your blood. It's only by your righteousness. It's only by your mercy that I even get to come and talk to you. I don't deserve to be here. And see, that will help to distinguish the pride of life. And then James chapter four, verse 10 tells us that humility before the Lord always promises exaltation by the Lord. Here's, here's how I heard somebody say it. If you wanna go up, you have to go down. If you wanna go up, you have to first go down. You have to humble yourself before the Lord and say, Lord, I need to do it your way. So love becomes sin when it's pointed in the wrong object, when it's pointing in the wrong direction, when it rises from the wrong source. Here's the last one. I'll cover it quickly. Love becomes sinful when it leads us to the wrong eternity. This is the weightiest one, obviously. And this is the one that seems to be missing from the large conversation, even in devout Christians. They're, they just don't think about the seriousness and the weightiness of what we're engaging here in the culture and what people that, you know, that they love, who, who they're being forced to love and accept irregardless, they don't think about the, the weighty eternal consequences. But 1 John 2.17 says, and the world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God will abide forever. I want you to notice two very easy to understand, but two very distinct endings here. On one hand, you have this world system, anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-everything that stands in the principles of the kingdom. But the Bible says that world is progressively passing away. And the Bible says one day that world will be completely extinct and everybody who was caught up in that and followed that world will go into eternal death. But on the other hand, the Bible says God abides forever and forever and forever. And so love becomes sinful when it causes you to participate or lean into something that is going to put you on a pathway towards death and destruction as, as opposed to a pathway toward, towards life. And this is why it becomes so pertinent for where we're at in our culture here. Uh, let, me, let me read you a, a little excerpt from an article. Uh, I, I was trying to get some understanding and, and I found this article on an on online site called Meet Mindful. And, and the whole purpose of the site, and they, they you know, have a pretty good section to uh, boast why that they're, they're there to help strong relationship, to build, help strong, build strong relationship foundation. But the author, Laura Eldon, she opens the article and the article is called Navigating Polyamorous and Other Non-Traditional Relationships. She opens it with this following uh, monologue. And here's what she said. Have you ever considered what it would be like to live in a world where everyone could be in love with everyone else, including yourself? Without jealousy and fear and insecurity? Imagine a world where every relationship you have, whether it be sexual, non-sexual, short to long-term, whatever, every relationship you have feels right at home, full on in alignment with your deepest desires and your longing for intimacy, connection, playfulness, and love. What would it take to cultivate relationships such as these? What changes, what considerations, what communication and practices might have to take place in order to support and nourish relationships based on that kind of love? In my two years of practicing open relationships, 
And, and she's going to list three of them, so just so that we're all on the same page. An open relationship, by definition, is a marriage or a committed relationship that have both agreed on the front side that they can have sexual relationships with other people outside the marriage. No problem. We're just going to stay committed. Like, we're, we're number one for each other. That's an open relationship. She said, in my two years practicing open relationship, but also uh, polyamorous relationships, that's the practice of engaging in multiple romantic and sexual relationships with the consent of all involved, and and here's the best one, and non-monogamy relationships. This this non-monogamy is an umbrella term that, uh, that really folds over every type of relationship that practices extramarital sex or group marriage. But, but here's the disclaimer, and you'll literally find this in just about every definition. The disclaimer is that these relationships are not synonymous with infidelity because all the parties consent to the relationship structure. It can't be wrong. We all say it's Okay. So that doesn't, that, that's not wrong at all. It, we all say this is fine. So she goes on and she says, in my two-year uh, two practice of these kinds of relationship, I've discovered that regardless of what kind of label I want to put on my relationship, the relationship style I choose to live in is a journey. And how we navigate through life and through our relationships is about how we stay true and honoring of ourselves while staying in connection with those around us. Now, her, her big question that she builds the rest of the article off is, why can't everyone love everyone else all the time? Why do we have to put all these labels on it? Why do we have to put all these boundaries on it? Sexual, non-sexual, long-term, short-term, one-night or whatever, who cares? Why can't we do that? And let me just cut to the chase and say there's only one reason why, because God emphatically said No. He he doesn't dance around it. God says, absolutely 100% not. And he makes it clear that if you choose to participate in these relationships, they're going to put you on a path that will lead to eternal destruction. This is not negotiable. Let me just read you three quick passages. I won't teach on them. Three quick passages, and we'll bring it to a close that are very clear about this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 says, Don't you realize that those who do wrong, and let me qualify this, doesn't mean that those who are still aren't perfect but are trying, and you know, we, we stumble, we make mistakes. This particular word, adikos, from the Greek means those who refuse to conform and who are intentionally and deliberately being rebellious. He says, Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourself. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, right in the middle of that list of just, just, you know, grossly immoral things is worship idols. And you're like, "What? what? That feels like it's out of place. But that particular word, worship idols in the Greek, is describing someone who openly or secretly or consciously or unconsciously is participating in the, in the adherence of these kinds of immoral practices. In other words, somebody might say, well, I'm not gay, but I do support the church that supports homosexuality as a part of a Christian lifestyle. Or I do participate in the celebrations of these kinds of relationship. Well, the Bible says, listen to me, you may not be actually doing any of those things, but because you're in the middle propagating them and celebrating them, he said, you are not worshiping God anymore. Now you've worshiped something else that you have elevated. What you're saying is, we'll look at this next week, you're saying that what I get from this relationship the loving exchange, the friendship, the business contacts, whatever it is, what I'm getting from this relationship is more important of a benefit to me than the, than the benefit I'm getting from a relationship with God. And that makes it an idol. That means you're worshiping this relationship more than adhering to the relationship of God. And he says, don't you understand? You'll never see the kingdom of God that way. You'll never, ever understand it. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 21. Paul says, yes, I'm afraid that when I come, God will humble me in your presence. And I will be grieved because many of you have not given up your old sins. You've not, 
You've not repented from your iniquity, from sexual immorality, and for an, from an eagerness for lustful pleasure. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, and the list goes on and on to get to the bottom. He says, but let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. June chapter 1, verse 7. He says, and don't forget Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring towns, which were filled with immorality and every kind of sexual perversion. Those cities were destroyed by fire and listen, and serve as a warning of etern the eternal fire of God's judgment. I, I don't care how many slogans they, they throw on it. You're going to hear a ton of them. We're in what they call Pride Month. I call it for myself Prayer Month. But I'm telling you, you're going to hear a ton of them. You know, love is love and love is for everyone and love is just being true to yourself and love is of the mind and not of the gender and love controls the heart. I don't care how many of those slogans you put on it. God says there are times when you are commanded, do not love. Doesn't mean you can't be loving, but you cannot love and participate. They're also going to place labels on you for this. They're going to say that you're a hater. They're going to say that you're a bigot. They're going to say that you're a fill in the, the first part, all kind of phobics, homophobe, genderphobe, all, all kind of stuff, right? They're going to accuse you of all kind of stuff. Listen to me. That's just part of the gig if you're going to be a follower of Christ. Don't give them any reason to throw those things at you unless it's a reason that is stated clearly in the word of God. And then as lovingly and as graciously as you can, you say, I'm sorry, but I cannot condone I cannot approve. I cannot love where God's commanded me not to love. We have to be loving people all the time. But when love points you towards the wrong object or towards the wrong direction or arises from the wrong source or leads you to the wrong eternity, God commands, do not love. Hope you've been blessed by God's word today. I know this wasn't one of the funner ones, but let me pray for you as we close today. Stand to your feet with me, please. Heavenly Father, thank you for stealing us on the inside, for galvanizing us, not just in the strength of the word of God and its, and its eternal consequence, but Lord, galvanize us in your love. Teach us to be people that speak the truth, but always in love, always humbly, always meekly, always with the spirit of Christ that wants people to find repentance and finds the kingdom of God. Lord, teach us during this month that the world's called Pride Month. Teach us as Christians what it means to be prayers, to be people that will bombard the kingdom of God, will intercede for those that we love and those that we know that the enemy's trying to steal them. Help us to snatch them back from the pathways of destruction and bring them back into the kingdom. Lord, we thank you as you do all of these things. We commit our life to you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for more messages. If you like what you're hearing, share it with your friends. For more content from Lakeshore and information on services, check us out at lakeshorecf.com.